Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 31st episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California boutique law firm of Morris & Stone. According to Consumer Business Review, we are the law firm of the millennium. We've got our fingers crossed for the next millennium. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, or if you need to fight an attorney fee application following an anti-slap motion, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Not the bottom law firm, the top law firm. Fantastic times at Morrison Stone. More fun with our summary judgment motions. I talked last time about the importance of knowing the procedural rules and how counsel had doomed his motion for summary judgment with a procedural snafu. Since then, I witnessed another shining example. The limit for a memorandum of points and authorities on a typical motion is 15 pages, but a motion for summary judgment is a big deal, so the rules graciously allow 20 pages for that type of motion. So I crafted a motion for summary judgment with many, many legal issues and edited it and edited it some more to get down to 20 pages. The first motion I ever brought in my legal career was a motion for permission to exceed the page limit. Let me give you a quick story. When I first became an attorney, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, gave me this really high-end Mont Blanc fountain pen as a gift. At that point in both our careers, that was a really extravagant present, so I wanted to take really good care of it. The instructions said that the nib of the fountain pen adapts to the owner, so you should really not let other people use the pen. Even though it was a stupid motion to extend the page limit of a motion, my girlfriend came to court to watch the momentous event of my very first ever motion as an attorney. As it turned out, I never got to argue. It was an ex parte motion, so I just submitted the papers and waited for the judge to take the bench. But he never took the bench. He just came out and walked to the area where I was seated and said something snarky like, I shouldn't reward negative behavior like this, but I'll let you have an extra 10 pages. Give me your pen and I'll sign your order. Well, the only pen I had was the fancy Mont Blanc that I wasn't supposed to let other people use lest it be wonky for the rest of its life. So there I was, stuck between getting my order signed or showing total disregard for the gift my girlfriend had given me as she sat there and watched. I opted to hand the judge my pen. My girlfriend later told me she was okay with the decision I had made. One of the many reasons I married her. Okay, so maybe it wasn't such a quick story. That's the only time I've ever requested an extension on the page limit, and I only did it that time because the firm told me to do so. To me, it's just it just shows lazy writing. That firm routinely made such requests before even outlining the brief. They know they're going to have 15 attorneys drafting the brief and assume in advance that they will need more pages. Anyway, back to my motion for summary judgment. I used every conceivable line to fit the motion into the 20-page limit. Then I get to the opposition brief from opposing counsel, and it's 60 pages long, and he had not requested permission to exceed the page limit. So what can a poor boy do except to sing for a rock and roll band? Well, a poor boy can engage in a little strategery. Judges like to split the baby. Because it so grossly exceeded the page limit, I argued that the opposition should be disregarded in its entirety. But judges also like to avoid having to work up a motion, so I always identify procedural errors in the opening brief of my motion or reply. I just come right out and say it. 
For example, sometimes opposition counsel will submit an unsigned declaration in support of a motion. An anti-slap motion, for example, or the opposition to an anti-slap motion must be supported by a proper declaration. Now, there are times when it might be based only on legal issues, but as I've explained here before, I still provide a declaration because Section 425.16 seems to mandate one. So my opening paragraph will say, The court need not consider the arguments set forth in the motion because the supporting declaration is unsigned. It doesn't work every time. I've had some judges give the opposition time to correct the mistake, but it works often enough that I always begin my oppositions and replies with such a paragraph when there is a procedural problem. So back once again to the motion for summary judgment. I did my usual opening paragraph pointing out the procedural error, in this case the 60-page memorandum of points and authorities. I argued that the court should disregard the opposition altogether. Now, there was a chance the court would take that option to avoid having to consider the opposition, but knowing that judges like to split the baby, I offered an alternative by arguing that the court should not consider the alternative. I said that the court might be tempted to just disregard the last 40 pages of the opposition's brief. But don't you dare do that, court, I added. I can't know if you're going to proceed in that manner, judge, so if I am forced to respond to all the arguments raised in the entire 60 pages, and I only have 10 pages to do so in my reply brief. That's really unfair. So don't you dare just disregard the last 40 pages. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. So in his tentative ruling, the judge stated that he had opted to disregard the last 40 pages of the opposition brief. That approach stripped the brief of some of the primary arguments, and that made oral argument very entertaining. Opposing counsel basically said, but your honor, there's some really crucial stuff in those 40 pages. He begged the court to consider the other 40 pages or to allow him to prepare a new brief that complied with the 20-page limit. The judge was unmoved and granted my motion for summary judgment. The plaintiff's case went down in flames. That is so bad for opposing counsel's client, and not just because he lost. He also destroyed the possibility of appeal. The court rules specifically state that a judge can treat a brief that exceeds the page limit in the same manner as a brief that is filed late. The court has full discretion to disregard it. There is no basis upon which the court of appeal could find the trial judge exceeded his discretion in refusing to consider those 40 pages. That means all the arguments that were contained in those 40 pages have not been preserved for appeal and will never see the light of day. You can't bring up new issues on appeal that were not presented to the trial court. So even if there was a great argument in those 40 pages, opposing counsel will not be able to make that argument on appeal. I can't imagine how this came about. Probably with 75% of the motions I bring, I'm fighting to keep the brief to 15 pages. This attorney has a lower bar number than me, so he must experience that same reality. This attorney might have some memory that you get more pages with a motion for summary judgment, but when he found himself passing the 50-page mark, how did it not occur to him that he might be exceeding some page limit? So enough war stories, let's get to some anti-slap news. Today's anti-slap case comes from the gambling world. Before getting to the facts, let me set the scene a little. Here's a call I get all the time. The potential client feels that he's being defamed, but when I listen to the facts, it is clear that the statements won't support a defamation claim. Most often it's because the statements do not involve a verifiably false statement. What people don't understand is that the statement must be offered as a verifiably true statement. In many cases, the hyperbolic language that has the potential client so upset is not defamatory specifically because it is so hyperbolic. It's just the statement is so ridiculous and charged with anger that the average listener would not take it to be offered as real facts. 
By the nature of the speech, it is apparent that it's not being offered as a verifiably true fact. And then there's another principle that comes into play. I think I've talked here before about the Joe is an alcoholic example. If I say only that Joe is an alcoholic, he might successfully sue me for defamation for that statement if he can somehow prove that he is not an alcoholic. But if I say that Joe is an alcoholic because every night I see him sitting in his backyard with a beer in his hand, watching the sunset, well, that's not defamatory so long as the predicate is true, so long as he's really sitting in his backyard every night with a beer in his hand. Within my statement, I've given the basis for my conclusion that Joe is an alcoholic and the listener or reader is free to determine if they agree with my conclusion. That example comes straight from the restatement of torts. So these are the principles that come into play with today's anti-slap case. The plaintiff in the case was a gambler by the name of Mike Possel. I watched the videos of the poker game in question and that is how they pronounced his name. Possel participated in a relatively low-stakes poker game in Northern California and won something like $250,000. Here is the crucial fact. The game was live-streamed like all poker tournaments you've come across on TV. And like those tournaments, they have those little cameras built into the table. So when the player looks at his or her cards, the viewers can see the cards, which makes it more entertaining to see how the player plays those cards. So Possel wins big in the game, but the other poker experts smell a rat. According to them, the way Possel played did not seem to make sense. He was making bets one would not make with the cards he had, supposedly, unless he, according to them, had some insight into what the other players were holding. So there were some who concluded that he was cheating by getting a feed of the live stream in order to know what cards the other players had. Some poker websites and commentators went through the video footage of the game in excruciating detail to advance their theories that Possel had cheated. Possel took umbrage with all these claims of cheating and sued a number of defendants, 12 to be exact. Now, if Possel had come to me with this matter, I would have told him about Joe the alcoholic. Yes, Mr. Possel, all these people are accusing you of cheating, and I fully understand why you are so upset, but like Joe the alcoholic, they are explaining the facts upon which they are relying in reaching the conclusion that you cheated. For example, you have this mannerism where you stare down at your lap between the bets, and some of the camera shots reveal that you keep your cell phone on the seat between your legs. Some speculate that you were looking down at your cell phone. The listener is free to conclude whether that fact, combined with the betting patterns and such, are enough to show that you cheated. If you sue these 12 defendants, you are absolutely going to get hit with multiple anti-slap motions. Because you are a well-known gambler, this controversy is a matter of public interest. Making matters worse, because you want to name 12 defendants, you're going to have to oppose many anti-slap motions, each of them with a concomitant risk of attorney fees. You could easily be facing half a million dollars in attorney fees from all the anti-slap motions if you bet wrong on your ability to meet the second prong of the anti-slap analysis. Even though you're telling me that you don't care what it costs and that you're confident that you can overcome the anti-slap motions, I have a sneaking suspicion that you won't feel that way when the anti-slap losses begin rolling in. You also need to understand, Mr. Apostle, that pursuing a defamation case is a two-edged sword. Right now, all the talk about you cheating is pure speculation. Quite reasonably, you want to sue for defamation to clear your name. But when you sue for defamation and lose, the reality then becomes that you could not prove that the statements about you were lies. In essence, you end up bolstering all the claims of cheating. I can't in good conscience take your money to pursue this case. I just don't think you can win given the Joe the Alcoholic analysis. But Mr. Possel didn't come to me, and he found attorneys willing to take the case, at least for a while. 
After filing the case with all the predictable anti-slap motions, his attorneys moved to be released from the case. That is always telling when an attorney has to bring a motion to be relieved. Every fee agreement I've ever seen provides that the client will sign a substitution of attorney if the attorney wants out of the case. If the attorney has to bring a motion, that means the client refused to honor the agreement and is trying to keep the attorney in. So Postle tried to represent himself for a while and asked for continuances, ostensibly so he could seek new counsel. Ultimately, in the face of the anti-slap motions, he dismissed his action. But as all good listeners of the California Slap Law podcast know, once an anti-slap motion has been filed, dismissing the action does not avoid the attorney fees. The attorney then brings a motion for attorney fees, and the court decides if the defendant would have prevailed on the motion, and thereby entitling the defendant to the attorney fees. The ruling on the first attorney fee motion just came down, and it was good news for Postle, well, sort of. The defendant was seeking over $43,000 in attorney fees, and the court reduced it to under $30,000. The attorney charged $695 per hour. Postle was suing for $330 million. Instead, he ended up having to pay the opposition's attorney fees, and the story will now be that after being accused of cheating, he sued for defamation and lost. Whereas future poker tournaments might have let him participate since all the claims of cheating had just been speculation, that might not be the case now. Now, if there's any silver lining, at least he moved fast enough to dismiss that he will only have to deal with, I think, one more motion for attorney fees. A plaintiff remains liable for attorney fees if he dismisses while an anti-slap motion is pending, but once the dismissal is in place, the other defendants can't bring anti-slap motions. Assuming $30,000 per anti-slap motion, he could have been facing $300,000 in fees, assuming there would have been some doubling up with the same attorney representing multiple defendants. It appears he dismissed quick enough so that he limited his fees to $60,000 or so. The anti-slap statute is certainly serving its purpose of disposing of frivolous actions, but I can't help but feel that it has become a case of the tail wagging the dog, given the specter of attorney fees. You are likely familiar with the distinction between the English rule and the American rule as, as it comes to attorney fees. Under the English rule, which is the rule in most of the world, the loser in a civil action pays the other side's attorney fees. But that rule discourages even righteous claims. You can never escape the randomness of the litigation process. You may have a perfectly valid action, but a key witness fails to appear at trial or whatever. The client having to pay their attorney for the debacle is bad enough, but under the English rule, they would also have to pay the opposition's attorney. And just as with some attorneys following anti-slap motions, the fees of the opposing counsel may well be inflated. That's why after we threw all the tea into the harbor, we here in America decided that the more equitable arrangement would be for parties to an action to bear their own attorney fees unless there's a contract or statute to the contrary. Because the anti-slap statute provides for attorney fees, that necessarily tempers my advice to clients when they come to me with defamation claims. Of course, that can be a good thing, but there will always be those cases that are viable but cannot be pursued because of the risk of attorney fees. I've told the story here of the defamation case I lost in San Jose because the judge did not understand the most basic rules of evidence and would not listen to my explanations of the law. She was ultimately censored by the Judicial Council and left the bench in part because of the way she had handled my case. The client ultimately prevailed on appeal, but it just shows how the result of a case may have nothing to do with the merits. Speaking of attorney fees, stick around for the after show for the latest on one of my fee applications. Today's lesson was simple. 
You can't defeat an anti-slap motion if your defamation case won't withstand scrutiny. In my opinion, Postle's attorneys should have known that the facts of this case would not withstand the reasoning of Joe the Alcoholic. Have a great week and try not to slap anyone. In episode 30, I told the tale of my partially successful anti-slap motion. The judge could have apportioned my attorney fees based on the relative success of the motion, but she elected not to apportion the fees because all the issues were intertwined. She awarded my $25,000 in fees. Anyway, I posed the question at that time, how does an attorney go back to the client after such a loss? It's a ridiculous case. The plaintiff is just throwing a hissy fit over a couple of bad Yelp reviews. Now, I'm not minimizing the impact that bad Yelp reviews can have on a business, but these are not particularly bad reviews, and they are in a sea of other bad reviews. It's hard to convince a jury that a particular review is causing your business harm when there are 50 other reviews that are far worse. This was just a case where the business owner reached his breaking point over all the bad reviews and decided to take it out on my client. His energies would be better spent figuring out why so many customers are leaving him bad reviews. So the attorney should have told the client that it made no sense to pursue this case given all the other bad reviews, but she took his money and has now straddled him with a $25,000 fee bill from me and probably a larger amount from one of the other defendants. So what happens when you go to the client with that information? Well, the answer came in today's mail. The attorney filed substitutions of attorney both for the individual plaintiff and his corporation. I'm guessing that the plaintiff fired his attorney and now he is representing himself. But in another example of a procedural error, the attorney simply filed a substitution of attorney, making the client the attorney for the entity, which is verboten. A non-attorney cannot represent a corporation, even if it is his own corporation. I'm trying to decide the best way to make hay with that. I can drag the attorney back into the action and make her bring a motion to be relieved, but that might just force plaintiff to get new counsel for the corporation. I think I'm better off having it unrepresented. Instead, I might just leave it alone until plaintiff files an important motion on behalf of the corporation, and then I'll spring my trap. Now, you might ask, why am I revealing my thoughts when plaintiff might discover them? Well, the chances that plaintiff listens to this podcast are slim, and the chances that he would make it to the after show are even slimmer. In any event, anticipation can be the best torture. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.